Well, it's appropriate to talk about this man here, Squanto, for just a moment. We all remember the story, but if you go back to the 1600s and 1605 as a child, he was taken from Massachusetts to England. And while there, he learned some English, had a mentor, and he was being brought back to Massachusetts. And another ship overtook the one he was on. He was kidnapped, sold into slavery, spent some time then in Spain, eventually was taken back to England. And there, a monk purchased his freedom. That monk taught him the Christian faith, also taught him more English. And eventually then Squanto, wanting to go back home to America, took 10 years before there were resources and the availability for a ship that he could take and come back to America. He came back 1618, only to find as he rushed to find his family and friends, when he got to where his tribe had lived, they were all gone. He found out they had all died, and it's believed they died from smallpox. He then went into depression, went into seclusion. He eventually married, had a child. It's at this time then the pilgrims were in Massachusetts. Half of them had died and the rest were starving to death. 1621, winter's coming. They're not going to survive. Then they run into Squanto. He has a choice to make. He's got all this pain from his past, what people had done to him. But he had this Christian faith now and he chose forgiveness, grace, helped the pilgrims, taught them how to, to grow their crops, build a warm home, showed them how to fish. Imagine they're surprised when he comes out and here's this man they see coming out of the woods and he speaks perfect English, shares their faith. And this is the beginning then, that celebration of him being used by God to rescue them. They celebrate then by what we know as Thanksgiving. For some, maybe you'll identify with this prayer here by Alexander White as you go through the holiday season, Thanksgiving into Christmas. Alexander White, a Scottish minister in the 1800s, he was very positive, and one day the town was going through something bad, weather was bad, people were upset. One man was particularly interested in what Alexander White was going to pray because he was so positive. And here's the prayer that he shared that day, and maybe some will identify this. Alexander White prayed, we thank thee, O God, that it's not always like this. And that's a challenge for some, that maybe your prayer is, thank you, God, for the blessings. And when it's difficult, thank you that it's not always difficult. Challenges people have, some are, are going through loneliness through the holidays. Others are going through some toxic family situations. Others, it's financial stress. So many different things. And, and the challenge is to, to live like we find here in one of the most important psalms in Scripture. We're going to look at here for just a moment and take this psalm and read it throughout these next coming weeks and find these words and why they're so important. We're going to see that reason why. There's, there's two major points to make here about why Psalm 18 is so critical, but it begins, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. David goes on to write then, I called on the Lord in distress. He answered me, sent me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. This Psalm was a favorite of Martin Luther. He had it on his wall. Martin Luther, again, in the 1500s, basically faced some of the most powerful people, whether it was a king or, or the religious leaders, the popes, and, and he had everybody against him, it seemed like. And so he had the psalm on his wall, and he wrote this in a commentary about that psalm. He said, this is my psalm, my chosen psalm. It has saved me from many a pressing danger, 
which neither emperor, nor king, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. That's how important Psalm 118 was to Martin Luther. One of the reasons why, though, is because if you look at Matthew 26, 30, this verse here is taking place at what we would know as the Passover, the Last Supper, Easter. And we're told they're getting ready to, to finish the Last Supper. And Jesus knows outside the doors there's going to be the troops coming to arrest him. Then there's going to be this trial and the, the cross. And Matthew 26, 30 says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, what psalm did they sing? They were singing, which is quoted in the New Testament many times. They were singing Psalm 118, and especially important is Psalm 118, where we're told at the end of the psalm, this is what David wrote. Imagine Jesus singing this. He's leaving the Last Supper, and the psalm at the end of it says, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Imagine Again, Jesus know, knows what's coming, and he sings, I shall not die, but live. He knew he was laying down his life only to take it back up again. That's why Psalm 18, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let me read something by Aaron Jeffrey. He is. It's a, it's a song written about Jesus in, in every book of the Bible. Here's what Aaron Jeffrey wrote. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. In Exodus, the Passover lamb. Leviticus, the high priest, numbers the fire by night. Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. Joshua, salvation's choice. Judges, lawgiver, Ruth, kinsman, redeemer. And Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's sovereign. Ezra, true and faithful scribe. Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In Psalm, he's our morning song. In Proverbs, wisdom's cry. Ecclesiastes, the time and the season. In the song of Solomon, he is the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's prince of peace. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, the cry for Israel. Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, the promise of peace. In Nahum, he's our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he's pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores a lost heritage. In Zechariah, our fountain. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. Let's go to Luke 15, familiar story here, but just one verse, the story of the prodigal son, and we all know that by heart. The prodigal son goes away, squanders his inheritance, ungodly living, and at this point in the story, he's coming back. The father sees him. Notice Luke 15, 23, the father goes out to meet him, and then 15, 23, the father says, now bring the fatted calf and prepare it and let us eat and be merry. Notice it is the fatted calf. Critical term there because it takes about two years to fatten a calf. When the father says bring the fatted calf, it's a picture that he was anticipating the return of the son. In two years, he was ready for that day when the son would come home. It's the same for you, for me, that the father, maybe you're 
far from home. Promises he's anticipating your return to come back. Trusting that forgiveness, that mercy, that grace. That's why the prodigal son, after that, he's given a ring showing he's still the father's son. Anticipating the return. Maybe you haven't kept commitments to God and maybe you haven't been thankful. Maybe you haven't been living for Christ. And today you want to make that turn around, that change. Know that he has anticipated that moment. Just as in the story, he runs out and he hugs the son. I want to read some statements here by Duncan Reoc. Some wisdom and some things to think about in this time of year, especially as people are going through the, the holiday time and people are, are thinking about some of the, the busyness and looking at trying to get maybe that perfect gift and losing patience maybe with some of the crowds. And Duncan Riach was or is a millionaire, but he did a lot of thinking and studying about the impact money's had on his life and other people's lives. He's also a counselor for other people wrestling with the the financial changes they've gone through. He himself talks about this understanding what happened that he learned some lessons here about wealth. And we've talked many times that studies show, you know, there's no real correlation at all between, you know, money and happiness. Once basic needs are met, more money doesn't bring more happiness, but still people in our culture believe the opposite. And so here's some points from Duncan Riach, another voice saying, look, I've been there. Let me tell you what really brings satisfaction and meaning to life. So here's one of the first quotes, and he says this, you can only help people to help themselves. You can only help people to help themselves. When he had some means to help others, he tried to do that, and he found some family and friends actually came to resent that he had helped them. And so he came to this point, he said, look, you can only help people to help themselves. You can't do it for them. And so we look to see, you know, where people have needs and we want to be that, that hand for them. And that's the right thing to do. But understanding there's a right time to help. And there's other times that maybe it's not the right time to help. I've shared before, Tony Robbins talked about, you know, wanting to find people to serve. And he was walking down the street and there was a homeless man and he asked him for a dollar. And Tony Robbins had more money than that in his wallet, but he gave the man a dollar and he thought he'd give him some wisdom. And so he said to the man, you know, life will pay whatever price you ask. And he said, the man looked at him and responded and said two words. He said, you're weird. And then he simply walked away. He wasn't ready for any kind of wisdom. He wasn't ready for some kind of lesson there. And so Tony Robbins said it was a learning lesson for him too. You know, there's this time that people are are ready and it's right to help people in need, but understanding there's a limit to helping somebody until they're ready to cooperate. And you can help lead people and I can help lead people to the answers. But ultimately, like Jim Rohn said, nobody can do your push-ups for you. We want to help people, but understanding, again, the best thing is to help them to help themselves. Duncan Riach, next thing he says, something we talk about basically weekly, but he said the biggest issue people have in life is limiting beliefs. And that's something to really consider going into this time frame with the business of the holidays and saying, you know, what are my beliefs about maybe some relationships that are not where they are? Do I have beliefs that they can be brought to a place of healing Maybe you're in a place where sin is taking you farther than you ever thought you would go. And your belief is, you know, it's too late. 
truth is it's the picture of the prodigal son, the father saying, you know what, I'm anticipating that moment when you believe all things are possible and he welcomes you back home. And the third thing, I love this quote here from Duncan Ryaki said, luxury is weakness. Luxury is weakness. It's not anything to do with, you know, some people are blessed with lots of money and some people have less money and somebody has lots of money, you know, to, to appreciate that. What he's talking about here, though, is luxury is weakness when a person doesn't appreciate what they have and they always think, if I just get the next thing, suddenly then I'm going to be satisfied. Or if this thing I bought brought some happiness. If I buy more, it'll bring more happiness. Or if I buy better, it'll increase my happiness. Those are simply beliefs that are not true. He goes on to say that luxury is an addictive drug. For instance, he talks about friends, you know, they had a Porsche and then they saw somebody that had a Ferrari. And so they didn't like their Porsche and they wanted that Ferrari. They enjoyed the Ferrari till they saw somebody that had a Maserati. And so then they were not satisfied. They had to have that. And that's why he says luxury is an addictive drug that pursuing of if I just had the next thing. You know, Bon of U2 said it like this. You can never get enough of what you don't really need. So what is it then that is the, the real advice that Duncan Riach says? Something I'll come back to here in just a moment. But this is a fascinating story here by Leslie Weatherhead. Going back to World War II, he wrote about an experience. He was in England, and he was having dinner with a couple right after World War II ended. And he shared, you know, food was scarce. But he said the, the wife, she prepared this meal with fish, and she had some vegetables and some rice, and the, the meal was great. And he said, when it was over, I thanked the hostess. And she blushed and looked at the ground. And I asked her, you know, did I say something wrong? And she responded, my husband never thanks me. And Leslie Weatherhead said he felt embarrassed for the husband. And he wrote this. He said, I can still see that man sitting there when he said, hey, love, I would have told you if I didn't like it. And we probably all know somebody like that, that person that has no sense of appreciation or that person that has no sense of, of gratitude. But the psalmist says, and what Jesus is saying is, you know, to have that gratitude, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because his love endures forever. Which brings us back to the final point here, point here by Duncan Riach, who says, deeply enjoying whatever it is you're experiencing now in life is the ultimate wealth. Again, to come to that place and say, what can I appreciate in this moment and give thanks for? And always we can say, I give thanks to the Lord because his love, it endures forever. His love is never ending. Let's look at another very familiar story, Luke chapter 19. This is the story. We again know this one by heart, but look at a couple statements here in this interaction with Jesus and Zacchaeus. And we know Zacchaeus, he's the man who was short. Here's Jesus is going to be in town. He sees the crowds. He can't see over the crowds. He climbs a tree. And here's how Luke writes about that story. Luke 19, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. And then notice he says, and he was rich. Again, nothing wrong with being rich for some, they are blessed with more money than others. What was wrong was Zacchaeus being rich because he got rich, as most know, by being a tax collector. And tax collectors were seen as thieves as well as traitors. 
And he was the chief tax collector. He worked for Rome and he took money from the people around Jerusalem. And what tax collectors did is they could basically tell somebody, look, your taxes are this much. And they could make up a number and take that money and keep it for themselves, give their share to the Roman government, keep the rest. And Zacchaeus was chief tax collector. And again, and Luke says he was rich. So he had taken money from a lot of people. And then the rest of this story continues. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree immediately. I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus then came down at once, welcomed him gladly. Notice Luke highlights again, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Again, all of the people, they all knew Zacchaeus. They despised this man. And when Jesus goes into the house, the record stops. And the next thing we're told is Zacchaeus comes out and he stood up and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So we don't know what Jesus said and what happened between going into the house. Maybe they were in there a few hours. And then Zacchaeus comes back out. He's completely changed. And he says, I give half my possessions to the poor and four times back all the people I've stolen from. And the question is, what happened in that house? We don't know for certain, but we can speculate because we know the rest of the gospel. And we know what Jesus said to people. It's doubtful that Jesus went in and scolded him and began to say things like, you know, you're a thief and a liar. What did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? The same thing that he says to you, to me, telling us whatever we most need to hear from a standpoint of unconditional love in that moment. Perhaps when Zacchaeus sat down and he said, why did you come into my house? Jesus said, I came into your house because I saw you were the loneliest person in the world and you don't have any friends. Maybe he sat down and said, Zacchaeus, I came into your house because you and I know what you are doing isn't what you want to really be doing with your life. And I can show you the path to freedom. Maybe he entered into that house and said, Zacchaeus, you and I both know you have a lot of stuff but you're broken and empty inside and you can find healing because my love endures forever. And maybe speaking into your life, into my life in that same place, not entering into the house, but entering into our very hearts. And there's some people going through challenges or some others facing loneliness, others facing marital problems. And they think, you know, does anybody understand? And that's what Zacchaeus is thinking. Does anybody understand? And here Christ steps in and says, Zacchaeus, I know you better than you know yourself. And when Zacchaeus comes out of that house after that meeting, he says, I'm giving back everything I've stolen four times over. And when the people were talking about Zacchaeus before that meeting, they said, this is the thief. And when they talked about Zacchaeus after that meeting, they were saying, what happened to him? He just showed up in my house and gave me four times what he took from me. Imagine the healing, but we don't have to simply imagine the offers there for you and me because 
His love endures forever. Most probably know Gloria Estefan, the singer. Something fascinating about her. She, one of the most successful singers, you know, she sold 100 million albums worldwide, 31 million plus here in the United States. Her net worth, $500 million. But a few years ago, she wanted to honor somebody she said that helped to change her life. And this is that person here. It's her first grade teacher. What had happened when she went to school in 1963, she didn't speak English. The other children, to them, she was an outsider, so she was bullied and all alone. And this teacher came along and befriended her and mentored her and taught her. 50 years later, Gloria Estefan went back to that teacher and that teacher you know, said, you know, I was hoping you would never forget me. And Gloria Estefan said, never. The impact we can have on somebody else's life and other people having on our life. When we come to a place and we might be in a place like the prodigal, know that the father's anticipating your return. Maybe like Zacchaeus, you just have to simply say, Jesus, do you understand what I'm going through? Quietly listen in prayer as he speaks into your life. The words are going to change everything. Love this statement by Roland Allen, missionary, medical doctor in India. There were people in this certain village and they were born with normal sight, but everybody was losing their vision and something in the environment. And he went there and he was able to determine what was the cause of why they were losing their vision. And for the people losing it, he was able to help them to restore that vision. And so imagine people now being able to see again. And Roland Allen said, you know, it was amazing to watch people, the, the joy, the tears. And he said this, though. He said, they never said thank you. That phrase was not in their dialect. And said they would say, I will tell your name. I will tell your name. What an incredible honor to, to think about that. But that's our calling to say, Jesus, I will tell your name. And then live in such a way that our life impacts others. So then they say, I'll tell your name. And Jesus gets glorified because we serve and say, I give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Aaron Jeffrey continues as we close in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He is God, man, Messiah. In the book of Acts, he is fire from heaven. In Romans, he's the grace of God. In Corinthians, the power of love. In Galatians, freedom from the curse of sin. Ephesians, our glorious treasure. Philippians, the servant's heart. In Colossians, he's the Godhead Trinity. Thessalonians, our coming king. In Timothy, Titus, Philemon, He's our mediator and our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, the everlasting covenant. In James, the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, he is our shepherd. In John and in Jude, he's the lover coming for his bride. In the Revelation, he is king of kings and lord of lords. The prince of peace, the son of man, the lamb of God, the great I am. He's the Alpha and the Omega, our God and our Savior. He's Jesus Christ the Lord. And when time is no more... He is. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever.